Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Good morning and happy summer. This is Fertility and Sterility on Air, July 2023. And for those of you keeping track at home, this is volume number 120, number one. And I am just joined this morning by Kurt Barnhart and Pietro and Micah are out. Good morning, Kurt. Good morning, Eve. Great to see you. It's the beginning of the summer season, so I hope everyone can listen to this podcast while they're out on their own vacation. Yes, I hope so too. And just to plug, we're going to be going to Esher next week and we've got a whole lineup of excellent speakers from the conference. We're going to be recording live from Esher, although the podcast is not going to be coming out live. And we're going to be sharing some of the best of the meeting. So I'm really excited to interview some of the folks that we have lined up and have some great conversations and learn about what's going on around the world in the field of reproductive medicine. I'm very impressed with the content of these articles and also what we're going to hear at Eshri. So share this, uh, share this to all that want to listen. Yeah, so we're going to dive right in. We're starting with one of the original articles. Kurt, this one is yours. This is the impact of socioeconomic status on bulk semen parameters, fertility treatment, and fertility outcomes in a cohort of subfertile men. Sure. This is a light one in terms of uh, you listening at home. That The message here is might end up to be pretty obvious and clear, but um, it's a really well done paper, and I really think you should take a look at it if you have the time. So as Eve just said, it's the bulk impact of socioeconomic status on bulk semen parameters, fertility treatment, and fertility outcomes in a cohort of subfertile men by Drs. Horns, the first author, and Joxer Hot-Tailing, the senior author out of the University of Utah, and also the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. So the study was basically a high-level study. This is a macro study, as we would say in the epidemiologic literature, to study the effect of socioeconomic status on the use of fertility treatment in a large population database. In this case, they're using um, the Utah database, which contains a plethora of data. I'm very impressed that they can get access to this. So it's basically patients seen in the fertility clinics throughout Utah. So it's all men undergoing semen um, analysis between 1998 and 2017 in the state's second largest care networks. So the intervention, so to speak, remember every study has an intervention and an outcome. The intervention here is socioeconomic status, uh, and I'll go over a little more detail how they calculate that. And the outcome is basically how often did men that had a semen analysis to begin with, that's the population, how often did they continue with their treatment and how often were they successful with their treatment? So to cut to the chase, and then we'll talk to a little bit more about the details, when you control for age and ethnicity, and even the semen parameters up front, men with low socioeconomic status were less likely to use fertility treatment. So they were 60 to 70% less likely. So even though they got a semen analysis, they didn't follow up on it. When they did follow up on them, they were less likely to use IUI, about 30% less likely than men with high socioeconomic status. And they were about 40% less likely to use IVF. So we're starting to build a picture here. 
they managed to get a semen analysis, but they didn't follow up on it, and they weren't using actually the better fertility treatments. Now, of those that did use fertility treatments, again, controlling for semen analysis and all the parameters, even those that did, um, outcomes were better for, for men with high socioeconomic status than, with, than women with high socioeconomic status. In other words, the overall pregnancy rate was down by about 13%. So the take-home messages, and we'll delve into this a little bit more, men from disadvantaged areas, I don't know if they're less likely to get a semen analysis, but if they get a semen analysis, don't follow up with their treatment, use IUI and IVF less frequently, by the way, they use it less and they use fewer cycles. And when they do use it, they have a lower pregnancy rate. So it's really setting the story here that there really is some sort of burden and some sort of barriers and, and disadvantage for these people. Now, let's talk about it a little bit even. Why do you think that would be is really the, the question at hand. It's a well-done study and we can poke holes in some of the definitions, but really, why do you think this is? Yeah, well, I think that there are two things. So one, with regard to the lower pregnancy rate, it's actually a lower cumulative pregnancy rate, which didn't quite surprise me as much because fertility treatment is iterative, right? You need to do it. You need to do it again. And the overall likelihood of success is really in that cumulative likelihood. And I think that probably it goes it goes back to the fact that um, this was done in Utah. Utah is not a comprehensive mandated state, meaning that you don't have all of the treatment covered that's necessary in order to achieve a live birth. And so I think a lot of it really just comes down to economics and showing that um, economically disadvantaged may have more difficulty accessing care and may have more difficulty following through with care. I don't know. I mean, it does remind me a little bit of some of the area deprivation index studies that were done looking at ovarian reserve. And there may actually be a biological component where you have more DNA fragmentation and you have more factors that then impair the quality of the sperm in those who yeah, have economic Let me jump in. That you, you're correct. They use area deprivation index. And for those listening, what that is, is they take a combination of income, education level, employment and housing quality to come up with this area deprivation index. It, it's hard to describe how those factors calculate in, but it, it does come up with a calculable score, which allows you to do this kind of study. So I just wanted to back up and tell everyone that's how we're doing this. But it really should look at disadvantage versus advantage. But if you control for that, I agree, cost is what the author said. But why, if you take costs out of it for those that follow through, why are they still getting lower pregnancy rates? Well, Kurt, was it lower single cycle pregnancy rate or is it lower cumulative pregnancy rate? And I think that it was cumulative. And so I agree that on a single cycle, it doesn't make sense. And I'd have to go back and, and look at that. But it, IVF, IUI is not a single cycle treatment. And so it really is that cumulative likelihood of success that is going to be different. And I think that that really has a lot to do with economics, that if you are struggling to pay for care, you may, and I see this time and time again in my own practice, you may save up and you may pay for one cycle. And one cycle is just not enough for the majority of patients. I agree. Um, and it's not clear to me, looking back at the paper even now, if it's just one cycle, it says incident rate ratios. So it's hard to know if that's it's that, if yeah. that's cumulative or not. And the authors talk about the, um, the economics of it too. And I agree. Their, their main conclusion is that the barrier to fertility treatment seems to be cost. I think the elephant in the room is it solely cost. 
And this paper really just gives you more food for thought on that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we can't ignore some of the female data that was that we talked about a few months ago, looking at ovarian reserve and area deprivation index. And so I think that there may be biologic plausibility. We know that diets of those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged may be worse. We may be seeing more obesity in that population. We may be seeing more cigarette use. I think that, again, this was a macro study and on a global level, I think fundamentally it made sense to me. I really read it as cumulative likelihood that those who are economically disadvantaged are not seeking care at the same rate and they're not achieving cumulative pregnancies at the same rate than those yeah, who are I agree. Good, good discussion. I'll end on the macro statement that I found that, that um, something we don't often see in the literature. Usually we get the odds ratios of success rates and things like that. But what I liked was their last sentence in their results was, given this likelihood of disparity about less likely to use treatment, less likely to continue with treatment, and debatably less likely to be successful when you use treatment, they calculated that it's additional, um, a disparity of perhaps five live births per year. In other words, high socioeconomic um, groups are having five more children than low socioeconomic groups given IVF treatment. That's something to chew on for a little bit. And we don't want to go into politics here, but it really does make you think that fertility treatment really is one of these areas that has disparity in, in its access and its success. Yeah, I could not agree more. And we have another paper later on in the podcast that talks about disparities so just a little foreshadowing there. This next paper that we're going to talk about is called Modified Natural and Optimized Program Frozen Embryo Transfers Have Equivalent Live Birth Rates in Analysis of 6,682 Cycles. And this paper is by Elizabeth Wolf with senior author Thomas Toth, and this comes out of Boston IVF. This is a retrospective cohort study between January of 2014 and December of 2019, and it compared nearly 1,200 modified natural cycles to nearly 5,500 program cycles from 4,500 patients. So going back to definitions, the modified natural cycle was defined as one that uses HCG to trigger ovulation compared to a program cycle that has full estrogen and progesterone supplementation in the absence of ovulation. The center in this study starts vaginal progesterone, and they used crinone once daily or endometrin BID, and they start the progesterone four days after HCG trigger. The program cycle was estrogen, either three milligrams of esterase BID or a 100 microgram clomera patch, Q3 days, followed by progesterone, and again, either crinone or endometrin BID alone, or IM progesterone either alone or once every three days with endometrin. A prior Cochrane review that was done in 2017 evaluated whether there was a single best protocol for FET, and there was insufficient evidence to recommend any one protocol in particular because the quality of evidence was low. Additionally, there was wide protocol variation among cycle types, and so the primary objective of this study was to compare live birth rates after modified natural and programmed single-blast FET cycles. And the authors hypothesized that modified natural cycles would have superior live birth rates when compared to programmed cycles. In addition, the study did some subgroup analyses and aimed to determine whether there was a best route of P4 administration in program cycles. 
So I have to say, I'm not surprised by what they found, but you really have to dig a little deeper into the data to understand the key findings of this study. So spoiler alert, the key finding is that you need IM progesterone for programmed FETs. And if you use IM progesterone, the success of your programmed FET is the same as the success of your modified natural cycle. But if you use vaginal progesterone alone, then the success of the program cycle is lower. And I think the reason I'm not surprised is that this original paper looking at the regimen of endometrin BID and then once every third day PIO was published by me in 2013. And the subsequent work that has been done on FET cycles has been built from there and using that same protocol that we published back then. So let's look at what the data showed. So on first glance, it appears that modified cycles have higher pregnancy rates compared to program cycles, which is what the authors hypothesized. And that was, in fact, true. For all comers with all protocols, the clinical pregnancy rate and live birth rate was 63.3% in the modified natural cycle compared to 55.7% in the program cycle group. However, when they stratified by progesterone type in the program cycle groups, the group that used vaginal progesterone alone demonstrated a 33% reduction in live birth rate compared to modified natural cycles. Most important, there was no difference in relative risk of live birth if program cycles used IM alone or in combination once every three days with vaginal progesterone. So the bottom line here, what I took away, is that modified natural cycles and program cycles have no difference in clinical pregnancy rate and live birth rate when IM progesterone is used. As we have discussed numerous times on the podcast, the obstetric outcomes may be superior with corpus luteum function, and the NAPRO study will hopefully answer that question. But in the interim, I think choose the protocol that makes the most sense for the individual patient and for your IVF laboratory workflow. And I think we have enough data between the original 2013 data and then the subsequent RCT that ensued with first author Kate Devine and these data showing that we're seeing lower pregnancy rates looking at program cycles using just vaginal progesterone. So I think it is time that we abandon vaginal progesterone only in programmed FETs. <laughs> Kurt smiling. Yeah, um, I just got back from an international conference, and whenever you leave the United States, there is such an uproar against intramuscular progesterone. I mean, it, people attack me in the hallways and on the podium about why do we continue using intramuscular progesterone and what's my rationale? And I and I usually say because it works, and right. we've tried it in our program numerous times. We've taken off, and we've noticed a decrease in pregnancy rate. And look at all this work, including Divine study and stuff like that. But there, but there really is an amazing pushback against IM. I don't know if it's cultural. I don't know if they're convinced the patients really don't like it, or or maybe that there's companies pushing subcutaneous or or the the vaginal roots. But um, I don't have an answer. But it seems to be that this is more data piling on that IM works. But I want to back up a little bit. That wasn't the primary point of this paper, right? The primary point of this paper was whether HCG trigger helped or not. Is that is that the case? No. I mean, the primary point of this paper was really to compare a live birth rate between modified natural cycles, which is where you do an HCG trigger, versus a program cycle. And they had hypothesized that modified natural cycles would be superior. 
And for all comers, when you didn't do a subgroup analysis and you looked at everyone who did a modified natural and the um, protocol that they used versus everyone who did a programmed FET, and admittedly, there was a lot of heterogeneity in how they do an FET, all comers for all comers, modified natural was superior. But when they did the subgroup analysis and they just looked at those programmed cycles. That's where they found used... that iron progesterone is better. Yes. Yeah, this is this is also something I, I get asked about and it's worth talking about the podcast is this is a really hard study to do because, you know, there's an innate success rate of an embryo implanting in a perfectly normal cycle, right? So if how close are we to perfect with a modified natural cycle or with a program cycle? So to claim or to prove one is superior is a really hard study. I agree. Right? I agree. And it's not, you can never have a perfectly controlled study because you're putting two different embryos into two different patients. (laughs) But but even if you randomize between the two groups, unless we're not doing embryo transfers correctly, meaning there's a, a method that's much better that we don't know about, you know, trying to prove that two that are pretty close to natural are better is is a really tough task. Well, but I would also argue, so this study had some heterogeneity in PGT, right? So some of these transfers were euploid, some of these transfers were not euploid. Even in a euploid FET alone study, it's still each couple that comes to the table has a different reproductive potential with each embryo, right? Like not all embryos are created equally. And not all couples have the same history. Right. But that's where randomization should take care of that if you did it right. But then the argument comes down to, but not everybody has natural cycles or not everyone has a normal cycle. So you, you, you get into this idea that it's probably relatively equivalent in someone that has um, normal cycles, but in someone that's anovulatory, you don't have a choice. So anyway, I'm fascinated by this argument because it really is the hot topic around the world. But I think this paper just adds more information that what I took from it was that yeah. the, two, the two different methods are not that far apart. Um, and I agree with you, you know, using what's better for your patient is a good idea, with the exception is I don't understand the rigor for vaginal progesterone. Well, where I really struggle, and I'm sad, Pietro, I'm sad you're on vacation right now, but where I really struggle is why do you start vaginal progesterone four days after HCG trigger? Like, what is the... What is the rationale with that, right? Is that that you start to have a slow rise in progesterone post-trigger, and so you don't want to advance the endometrium too soon? However, when you do a natural cycle or when you do a program cycle, you have five full days of high levels of progesterone. So I don't really understand the rationale for that. When we do- I think you picked on something that we don't, we, the royal we don't understand the rationale. Whenever you have this argument, people say, oh, but you're using the progesterone at the wrong time, at the wrong level or the wrong dose, because we don't really understand what the right one is. We think we know this concept of the the window of implantation, but I don't think we know it fully, which is, again, just limiting our ability to answer this question. Right. And are we better off triggering or are we better off allowing ovulation to happen on its own? Um, I think that question is unanswered. And But that's a different question from the study, just to be clear. Right. And I would love to know the answer to that one. Right. That study, right. That study did not look at it. We have some data from our own center looking at that because we do different types of natural cycle FETs. I think it drives our lab crazy. But we have some 
sometimes we'll do a natural cycle FET where we will monitor progesterone levels and then we will time embryo transfer based on progesterone. And then we have physicians who will trigger and then time seven days post-trigger. And then with that, we have some physicians who start progesterone 36 hours after trigger and some physicians who start progesterone day after embryo transfer. And none of that seems to make a difference. But I would love to know if it did. So that's what I'm calling for. Call for the next study that we could be published in the journal is um, we can have this argument about programmed versus uh, modified natural, but I want to know what's the right way to do a natural or a modified natural. So someone please do that study in the next couple of months and we'll discuss it on the podcast. I love it. Thank you for the call to action. Kurt, we're going to move to your next study, which is um, diagnosis of gynecologic malignancy following treatment of presumed benign fibroid disease with interventional radiology procedures, a retrospective cohort study. Yeah, great. This one is done by Hawaii Paulo Leonardo Pinto and is the first author and Sarah Cohen Razier out of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts. And it seems to me you guys always give me the gynecologically based <laughs> papers rather than the practical ones, which is fine. But this one we should know about, um, but it's not probably going to affect your everyday care. As you said in the title, this is basically looking to see how often your diagnosis of benign fibroid is incorrect when you're using interventional radiology. So fibroids are common and we all deal with them. Perhaps we're all not doing myomectomies anymore. Um, and many, and some of our patients at least are going to interventional radiology. So there's a big debate in the gynecologic literature about how often a fibroid is actually a sarcoma. And the incidence is estimated somewhere between one in 350, others say, you know, one in 8,000. This is a slightly different population. This is a population that went to interventional radiology so therefore, they don't have pathology at the time of the diagnosis. And the question was, using a large database, how often are we misdiagnosing or missing a sarcoma in, in this case? The authors hypothesized that it would be fewer um, than those that undergo myomectomy because the age is usually uh, younger, uh, and perhaps the patients are a little bit more educated and chose interventional radiology rather than surgery. So it was a kind of mixed method studies where they took all the medical records and then they tried to survey the subjects that all had interventional radiology procedures at this large institution in Boston. Uh, and they found that they had about 50% of people return surveys and they would supplement that with about another 30% with medical records. And they up with, end up with a relatively large case series. And I say case series because that's really what it is. It's, they really don't have a comparison other than a historical group. And they followed these patients up for anywhere between two to 195 months. So before I give you the final number here, you should ask a couple questions. You know, why are these people undergoing this procedure? And it was for reasons that you would expect. It's bleeding and pain and bulk symptoms. And surprisingly, I'm going to say this now, and we'll talk about it later, only 45% of these people had pre-procedure sampling of the endometrium. The authors do discuss that. So the results will be out of 491 subjects, they had follow-up on around 350, and 106 of those had a second surgery of some sort, and they found four cases of sarcoma, around 1.2%, an additional two cases of endometrial cancer. One was a precancer and one was cancer. So the amount of malignancies they found was actually surprisingly high. Um, and then the question became, for the rest of the paper, why is this unexpectedly high? And Eve, before I go into the specifics, I mean, what do you think, first of all, of their hypothesis? Do you think that patients undergoing IR are better prognosis 
than those that are undergoing myomectomy? Do, do we have a different population than those that undergo myomectomy? I think sometimes myomectomy has more fibroids and IR has maybe a single dominant fibroid. I, I don't know. I think it's very difficult to ascertain because it, I do think that practice patterns may depend on the institution. Right. So so one of the things they discussed in the discussion was they reversed our hypothesis. They said, perhaps maybe our hypothesis was wrong. Maybe people that go IR are undergoing it because they have surgical morbidity, because they don't have as much follow-up, because they're a more difficult population, which is why the incidence was higher of cancer than in the regular group. I'm not sure I buy that one way or the other. That's kind of just trying to explain the idea. But it is interesting that a whopping 1.2% of people actually had sarcoma, and two of these people had very, very advanced disease when they found it. There was some discussion whether these were pre-existing conditions and therefore the disease progressed or whether it was a new finding. You're not, you're not able to tell at this point, but still, it, it is concerning. Um, and then the final argument was, is, is it the incidence so high because it's a, it's a referral center? And that's open for debate as well. Yeah. I mean, the statistic that I thought was most, I thought that was incredibly scary. It was 1.7%, 2%. But an additional 106 patients, which was 31%, underwent further surgical treatment for fibroids, most commonly hysterectomy, but also myomectomy, ablation, and DNC. So basically, I mean, what they showed was that they had nearly like a 69% success rate and a 31% failure rate, which is a pretty high failure rate. And so I think that First of all, the cancer rate was dangerous. I think it really speaks to what you said earlier, that you have to sample these patients or you have to be more careful in your who's going to make the decision to take on these patients. And how, where I struggle a little bit in our center is that not all of these patients see gynecologists. A lot of them are self-referred. And so I really think then the onus is on the interventional radiologist to review the images, obtain tissue sampling, and probably in discussion with a gynecologist to decide, is this an appropriate patient for interventional radiology management? That, that thought crossed my mind here, too. I wanted to be objective with the data. And you know, the, most of the cancers they found um, were sarcoma, which we're not going to find with the sampling, I agree. But they also looked back at the MRIs to say, of the original MRIs, because many of these people had MRIs before they had their ablation, they couldn't find any suspicious lesions that they missed. In other words, there were no characteristics that said, you know, we should have called this a sarcoma or was suspicious. There was two, ca two cases where degenerating fibroids were diagnosed, and I'm not sure if that's sarcoma or not. But anyway, that was a long-winded way to say, I wasn't thrilled with the care of these patients. It does make me think that, you know, they're just accepting anybody running them through a procedure and really not following them up. And I wonder if they were under a gynecologist's care, both for follow-up and consultation, would actually the outcomes perhaps have been different. Um, yeah, I The think success they, rate is horrible. You know, not 30, only that, Kurt, but there, about a third of the data were missing, right? So yeah. how many patients in the missing data may have had pathology and may not have responded to the survey or may not have sought treatment in that same hospital system. And so the records weren't available. And so if anything, I think that this probably underreports those complications. I, 
agree it underreports complications, but it's hard to imagine it's underreporting the incident cancers because that's a really high number. I agree. There's two findings here. One is I'm not really thrilled with the care that patients are getting from radiologists and the complication rates of the procedure and the failure rates of the procedure <laughs> impressed me in a bad way. But it also impressed me that that's a lot of cancer and I don't know why we're seeing that and why Boston is seeing it. So food for thought, that's why a, a large case series like that gets in fertility and serility because it invokes a lot of discussion. Um, and I do applaud the authors for publishing this because it's the right thing to do, even though it doesn't necessarily reflect well on the care that was given. Yes. So well said, as always. I am going to move on to the next article, which is Effective State Insurance Mandates on Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Utilization and Outcomes of Donor Oocyte Assisted Reproductive Technologies. And this was by Sian Lau with senior author David Safer from Yale. The objective of this study was to characterize the racial and ethnic disparities in donor oocyte ART nationwide and to examine the impact of state insurance mandates on disparities in utilization and outcomes. Using the SARC-CORS database, the authors analyzed just over 44,000 donor ART cycles performed for just over 28,000 recipients between 2014 and 2016. We'll touch upon that later. It is critical to note that race and ethnicity data was only available for 61% of cycles. Black recipients comprised just 8.3% of those who were ages 25 to 54, compared to 13.7% nationwide at that time. The primary exposure was oocyte recipient race and ethnicity, and the primary outcome was the probability of a woman achieving at least one live birth via one or more donor oocyte ART cycles in this time period. Clinical pregnancy rate was used as a secondary outcome. During these study years, there were two states, Massachusetts and New Jersey, with donor ART mandates. The authors hypothesized that state mandates could have lessened racial disparities, and therefore some additional statistics were performed to evaluate this interaction. There was a primary analysis where the cycles with missing information were included, and a secondary sensitivity analysis where multiple imputation by chained equations was performed to replace the missing values of the variables in the Poisson regression models. Here's what the authors found. Of the 44,000 donor ART cycles performed, 36% used fresh oocytes and the remainder were frozen oocyte cycles. 8% of cycles were canceled for the usual reasons. Blacks were underrepresented in all states except for Massachusetts where the race, racial and ethnic proportion of ART patients mirrored the state population. Black Asian and minority race recipients were older when they had initiated donor egg treatment cycles compared to their white counterparts. They were also less likely to reside in mandated states. Black recipients were less likely to use PGT, and Asian patients were more likely to utilize PGT. Black oocyte recipients were also less likely to undergo single embryo transfer and were less likely to achieve a clinical pregnancy or live birth rate compared to their white counterparts, regardless of state of residence. When comparing mandated states to non-mandated states, there was a higher cumulative probability of live birth for whites, Asians, and Hispanics in the mandated states. This was not seen for Black patients who had a lower cumulative live birth rate in all states. For all groups, the state mandates were associated with an 8% global increase in pregnancy rates for all groups, 
but it didn't ameliorate this, the disparities between groups. So I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think the key findings are that mandates for donor egg ART did not consistently increase access to this modality among all groups. And I strongly suspect, and I say this as someone who practices in a mandated state, that this is because even though the state has a mandate, a high proportion of patients are actually not included in this mandate. If your employer is out of state, if it's self-insured, if you work for a small company, if there's a religious exemption, coverage is not a guarantee. A mandate really only mandates coverage for a fraction of those that need it. And I think the second key finding is that disparities in outcome persist, even with improvement in coverage. And this is also consistent with work I published way back when I was a fellow using autologous oocytes, looking at outcomes in the military system, which has a more equal access model, and work that I published when I was at FCI, looking specifically at the donor population. We looked at stimulation by donor, race, and ethnicity, and then outcomes in the intended parents. And what we saw was that there were no differences in stimulation among donors by race, but we did see a lower clinical pregnancy rate and live birth rate in Black recipients. And in both of these papers, I suspected that these outcomes are likely due to the higher incidence of uterine factor infertility, specifically fibroids. And so I think that obviously on a macro level, SART data cannot look at that. But I do suspect that that may be part of the equation as to why we're seeing lower pregnancy rates in the Black population. This really dovetails well to the first article we talked about. This basically, if I hear your messages correctly, says that mandated states does, to some degree, lower the access problem and the cost problem, but not fully. And then you, you hypothesize a couple of good reasons why there might be racial differences. Most of the time, people would, when they hear the word racial differences, think about, I don't know, lifestyle or where you live or inner city versus of suburbs or things like that. But they forget some important things like you mentioned that, you know, there are differences in things like fibroids and other things. I don't know if that's enough to explain it, though. I still have this thought process that the disparities, it's really hard to get your finger on. Is it is it really socioeconomic or is it really incidence of disease or is it really a lifestyle? And I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think that, you know, one thing that was important was they did see so in all populations, they saw roughly an 8% cumulative likely increase in cumulative success rate. So it didn't matter if you were Black, white, or Asian, you had a higher likelihood of achieving a live birth if you had mandated insurance coverage. And I think that that's a really important message. Now, when I you look... I, I, sorry to interrupt. I think that's the important message you should take, that, that the idea that access could be improved, improved some of the disparity. And we should all understand that. That's apparent. Yeah. And I now, think whether where it gets up to 100% is a different issue. And that, that, that's where we get into the weeds a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And I think that on a high level, like that should be the take home point of this is that increased access to care increases the cumulative live birth. And that's kind of where I was going with the Utah paper that we talked about earlier, that it may not be so much access to care as much as it is comprehensive coverage. And so if success is cumulative, back to the back to the Utah paper, if success is cumulative, 
then we just may not be realizing that potential in those who are more socioeconomically disadvantaged. So I don't know. I think so many mysteries <laughs> and it gives us a lot to think about. But I, I do go back to that work that I published years ago looking at disparities to see whether or not there were disparities on the stimulation side versus on the implantation side and really saw no differences from a stimulation standpoint in these donors, but key differences in implantation rates and miscarriage rates. And I I do think that fibroids are probably a part of that equation, but not the whole picture. Yeah, it's interesting. But you something I forgot to mention in the UOTO paper is that they speculated that the IVF success rate might have been higher for the high socioeconomic group because they could afford PGTA. Um, which might give you a higher single embryo transfer rate. And I know we're at the end of a podcast, and I don't want to go into this whole debate, but it is possible that you know one transfer um, gives you a higher rate if you use genetic testing, and not everyone can afford that. But cumulative is a good point. And, and if you can't get people to follow through with their treatment, then again, it's an access barrier. So right. anyway, food for thought. There's a lot more papers that are coming out about disparities and I don't think one paper has really proven it or really convinced me one way or the other, other than the take-home message that access is a problem and we should fix that. Yeah, and I think my call to action, and I know other people are are working on this as well, but to have a large database study where you have 40% missing variables, I think we need more comprehensive information <clears throat> on these factors in order to better understand exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, I'm going to end with a slightly different thought here. I mean, the SART database appears in a lot of our research, and I I just want to claim this following statement. We all, when reading these papers, should understand that the SART database is large, but it's not necessarily the correct information. The SART database is just a reflection of our practice and has lots of problems with the way we collect data. It doesn't necessarily reflect the truth. It just reflects how we're practicing, well, not today, but whatever, five years ago. So I like publishing this art database studies in Virginia Serology. I just want all the listeners to understand that there are limitations and the data from those studies isn't exactly always accurate. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. We're going to wrap up our discussion today by talking about a research letter that I thought was a really clever study, and I'm glad that it's published in Fertility and Sterility. So this is called United States Vasectomy Incidence Rises Following the Reversal of Roe versus Wade in a National Clinical and Claims Database. And this was done by Tenny Zhang with Taylor Cohn as the senior author. And this was just a nice study. It was a retrospective cohort study assessing vasectomy rate in eligible men ages 18 to 60 before and after the reversal of Roe using TrinetX Research U.S. Collaborative Network. And this is a claims database providing real-time data from EMRs for approximately 87 million patients from 55 healthcare organizations. The authors calculated the vasectomy incidence in vasectomy-naive men with any clinical evaluation from January 2019 to January 2023. They assessed the vasectomy incidence for each month during this time. And just to remind our listeners, the row reversal was June 24th, 2022. Men with a previous vasectomy were excluded from the analysis. Subgroup analysis was performed and was stratified by geographic region, race, age, to determine 
whether several subpopulations were more affected by the reversal. They did an interrupted time series analysis, and they assessed the trends before the reversal, immediate change with the reversal, and trends after the reversal. What they found was that in the seven months after overturning of Roe, 0.2% of U.S. vasectomy-naive men receiving any outpatient clinical evaluation underwent vasectomy. And this was a 20% increase in vasectomy incidence from the seven months prior. And I think that's a really important finding. In their subgroup analyses, they found positive trends in vasectomy incidence pre-reversal in the Northeast, Midwest, and South among white, Black, Hispanic, or Latino men and men ages 18 to 39. The only negative trend was in men ages 40 to 60, so that may have something to do with the age of the female partner. And after the reversal, men of all ages and men in the Midwest and South were more likely to undergo vasectomy. So really interesting, and I think it's a nice call to action for men to take part in responsible reproductive choice as well. I think it's not a call for action as much as you saw a response, which is what made me like the paper. It, it, well, we're not yeah. telling men that they need to take responsibility. There was there was some evidence that men actually are willing to take responsibility, which which, which was interesting. How um, many of the wives but, made those appointments, Kurt? <laughs> <laughs> now you don't have evidence of that, um, but uh, no, that, that 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 could be. But it does show that events can have you know measurable effects. You know, sometimes you think when you hear the news that you know who's going to react or what's going to happen. But this actually shows that there are demonstrable, measurable effects of a, a political action. So I'm, I'm glad we we're able to characterize that and publish it. Yeah, I thought it was a nice study, so I was glad it made it in there. Well, that wraps up our part of the podcast for today. So for our listeners, we look forward to seeing you back in August. And again, tune in to Fertility and Sterility on air live from ESHRA for more scientific content. Well, Kurt, it was really nice having a smaller discussion, just the two of us, as much as I do miss Micah and looking forward to seeing Micah next month and miss Pietro and looking forward to seeing him next month as well. It was nice to have just a conversation with just the two of us. Enjoyed it as well, Leave until next time, and uh, we'll get back our, to full participation when we can. But thank you, listeners, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.